Hello everyone, this is Renu Epen from GUcast. We are delighted to bring you a GUcast special today in conjunction with the Prostate Cancer Foundation. Uh, this is today's PCF Global Webinar on Next Generation PSMA Theranostics, uh, hosted by our very own Professor Declan Murphy uh, in conjunction with uh, Michael Hoffman and Howard Soul. It features an outstanding panel of experts from around the world, so here it is, please enjoy. Good morning, everyone. Good morning from Melbourne and uh, good evening from the rest of the world. Welcome to our Prostic PCF Global Webinar Exchange. I'm here with my co-host, uh, Declan Murphy, who's a urologist and head of urology at, uh, at Peter Mac. You'll see Peter Mac in the background. Slowly the lights will come on because it's a little bit early. And our co-hosts from PCF, uh, Howard Saul, who's executive uh, director, and Andrea Mia Hira, who is uh, director of research. Uh, welcome to uh, everyone. It's a real pleasure. We have 960 people registered for this uh, webinar, which is quite extraordinary. Declan thought this was going to be a little webinar. Well, I must say, uh, Michael, uh, the, the topic this time is hardcore PSMA-related uh, theranostics. And I just said to Howard before we came live that I think a year ago, two years ago, there would have been uh, 50 people on this. And, and I think to see such interest uh, today is just reflective of what a hot topic this is. And, and especially with the research interest, it, it's so evolving. This is not just talking mainstream today. We want to see where all this is going with all the fantastic people you have on the panel and all the very, very fantastic people who... I sound like Donald Trump when I talk like that. Very tremendous. Tremendous, fantastic uh, people we have dialing in who we hope will ask lots of questions and contribute to the webinar. So this webinar series has uh, born out of a grant from the Prostate Cancer Foundation to fund Prostic, which is the Prostic Theranostics and Imaging Centre of Excellence uh, here at the Peter Mac. And this is really one of the aims to provide some education and, uh, and leadership. So we've got six uh, amazing speakers uh, with us today from a variety of different specialties. We've got uh, urology, nuclear medicine, radiopharmacy, radiochemistry, and uh, radiation oncology. So a real uh, multidisciplinary team. Uh, for those that want to find out a bit more about Prostic, uh, visit our website afterwards. You'll find out what we do. And if you want to keep up to date, we've got a Twitter feed. For those on the line who aren't on Twitter, uh, Declan is a Twitter master. He, he introduced me to Twitter, and it's a really great way to keep up to date. So if you follow at our Prostic, you'll, you'll find out. Uh, lots of interesting news. We have 962 registrants from uh, 51 countries, and this is a little bit of a breakdown. Uh, you can see most people from the uh, USA, uh, UK or Australia. And this is a breakdown of uh, specialties. And I think within nuclear medicine, there's probably a lot of different disciplines there, including uh, physicians, chemists, pharmacists and, uh, and physicists. So quite an amazing uh, group of people. And I thought I'd ask... Uh, a quick poll just to start with. We might, uh, we're going to start with the future. I'm going to launch a poll and just take everyone to answer this question. We're already looking forward to the next webinar and we want to know what topic would you like? Would you like more on next generation PSMA? Would you like to know about collaborative group clinical trials for Theranostics, uh, artificial intelligence PSMA or uh, some on dosimetry with precision oncology? And uh, depending which vote wins, we might go down that direction. We'll see. Uh, we have over 400 people voting, so it's quite extraordinary. We'll give everyone about another 10 seconds to, to vote, and then we will uh, stop. You don't have to vote, but please do vote. Uh, we can see the live votes changing on our side, and it is 
It is uh, moving around, but there is a clear winner. Uh, and the clear winner is people want to know about collaborative clinical group trials for Theranostic. So that's interesting. We might need to get our friends from Ands Up Cancer Trials Group together for that one. Uh, that will be good fun. Uh, I might uh, hand over to Howard and Andrea to say a few words before we start our talks. Thank you, Michael. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here for the third now. Um, PCF, Prostic Knowledge Exchange on um, ther- PSMA-based Theranostics. This has been a, a central theme, one of the central research themes that our foundation has been behind, not only in Australia, but in New York and Los Angeles as well. So we're pleased to be here. The agenda and speakers are awesome. And um, I want to make one point. I put into the, into the chat room um, a, a little a link to PCF.org 2020 retreat. If anybody is interested in joining our scientific retreat, um, in which, which will be in a couple of weeks, go to that link and you can register. It'll be our pleasure to host you. And there'll be a diversity of, of topics related to prostate cancer science and medicine that uh, you may find useful and informative. So thank you, Dr. Hoffman. I turn it back to you. Thanks, Howard. Uh, Yes, the PCF retreat, we'd be going to that in about four weeks' time. I've been to the last few, and it's one of my favourite conferences of the year, just uh, extraordinary, also multidisciplinary talent there, such a a range of topics from uh, anything you can think of. So in virtual form this year, it's uh, everyone should join because it really was a bit of an exclusive meeting in the past, invitation only, so you've opened it up to everyone, which is great. Uh, just take a moment also to thank our other funders. I forgot that last time uh, because the program here is funded by PCF, uh, but also Movember put a lot into our program, uh, Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia, and we also have a USDOD grant, and, and without all that grant funding, none of this would be uh, possible. It really is sort of academic grant-funded uh, program. And now I'd like to hand over to Klaus uh, Kopka. I'll get Klaus to share uh, your screen as I introduce Klaus. Professor uh, Kopka is a uh, radiopharmaceutical chemist and holds a, a professorship uh, in bio-inorganic and radiopharmaceutical chemistry at uh, TU Dresden. Uh, he was involved in the development of uh, Theranostic prostate-specific membrane antigen-targeting radiotracers. Uh, so p- the thinking PSMA-617 and PSMA-1007. And at the uh, HZDR, you know, he concentrates on the discovery of new classes of oncologic radiotracers uh, for early detection of Theranostic's uh, treatment of cancer. Uh, so over to you, Klaus. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the kind invitation, Michael. Um, I will concentrate the next couple of minutes on the evolution of glue-oreidotype PSMA-targeting tracers. Uh, it was Evan Kazikowski and Faju Nan and Paula Conti who created out of uh, N-acetyl-aspatyl glutamate, the uh, neuropeptide neurotransmitter, the first uh, glue-oreidotype um, lead structure. Um, with the aim to, to go for therapeutics. It's also called DUPA. This is the basis of our glue-oreido-based uh, radioligands nowadays. Shortly afterwards, Martin Pompa and uh, co-workers um, introduced the first radio-labeled <clears throat> um, 
PSMA inhibitors. Uh, on the right-hand side, the urotyrosine type uh, 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 chemical, as well as the C11-labeled cystinyl type uh, compound. And they successfully showed the uh, in vivo visualization of PSMA-positive NNCAP tumor-bearing mice. Uh, MIP compounds were um, further developed. Uh, at that time, John Babbage was uh, a MIP co-worker. And finally, they introduced in cooperation with Uwe Abercorn and Heidelberg University Clinic the MIP-1095 compound, the radioiodinated version, in 2014, the co-workers in Heidelberg <clears throat> published the first diagnostic approach in vivo in first patients. Um, here you see a nice um, accumulation of, of the radioiodinated version, MIP-1095, in the patient. And you see also, uh, after some days, uh, normal organs are clearing the um, radioactive substance and the tumor uptake and tumoral lesional uptake is maintained. Uh, MIP also um, developed the uh, KIT-type compounds, MIP-1404, as well as 1405. And recently, some years ago, Progenix took over this, this uh, class of uh, SPECT uh, compound, and uh, Progenix was taken over by Lantius Holdings recently. And last year, Rotop, the German radiopharmaceutical company, the company took over the exclusive license to further clinically develop MIP-1404 in Europe. <clears throat> Martin Pompa and co-workers uh, finally 2015 introduced PYL into the clinics. This is, uh, from my perspective, the gold standard F18 uh, PSMA inhibitor-based uh, PET tracer, and you see here a nice um, accumulation of, of this tracer in the late stage disease patient with a good contrast. And you see also a uh, renal excretion route here of this tracer because this is, tracer is quite uh, water soluble. Progenix took over also this tracer, um, uh, now Lantius Holdings. And at that time, between starting at 2011 and uh, until 2013, first publications came up. Uh, my predecessor in Heidelberg, Michael Eisenhuth, who'd, um, introduced the project also in Heidelberg and put on the uh, binding motive, the um, gallium 68 chelator HPCC. HPCC can complex gallium under room temperature conditions. I come later to this. And Michael received the Dagobert W. Nitz Award 2016 during the German Association of Nuclear Medicine Congress. <clears throat> On the right-hand side, you see Markus Schweiger, the former head of the nuclear medicine clinics at the Technical University of Munich. Um, I was then asked to go for setting up together with the PI Frederick Giesel in Heidelberg, uh, uh, academically driven German Cancer Consortium multicenter clinical trial, phases one and two. Uh, you guys in Australia went well, so you already published the pro-PSMA pro study, and we tried hard to establish this prospective clinical trial in Germany. 
And uh, in July, um, we ended up with the last included patient number 173. So this is a prospective study to elucidate if, if uh, we have a value of a primary diagnosis using PSMA11. Uh, in parallel, we translated PSMA11 to PSMA617 together with our former doctoral student, Martina Benjova, now heading a junior group at uh, German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg. So uh, we created the therapeutic version PSMA617 and out of PSMA617, we translated back into the diagnostic version PSMA1007. You see here uh, preclinical differences between PSMA 11 and 617. PSMA 617 obviously is more internalized into PSMA positive LN cup uh, cells. And we discovered, and this is really uh, a need uh, going for, for therapeutic applications, there is a clearance happening after some time in the marine state here from the kidneys into the, the urinary bladder and the tumor uptake of this xenograft tumor was maintained. The same situation uh, was then observed in the first demand study performed by Uwe Haberkorn in Heidelberg. You see here the whole story. Um, the patient given here the tissue PSMA 617, two cycles only at that time. Uh, the guys were very carefully at that time monitored by PSMA 11, and you see here a complete radiological remission. Uh, this was uh, the first successful story in the year 2015, uh, honored by the SNMI in Baltimore. So a few years later, in cooperation with uh, Frank Roesch, uh, Markus Esler, um, Elisabeth Eppard, we confirmed the biodistribution behavior by um, labeling PSMA 617 with scandium 44. And really, we were happy to see that after one day, this tracer PSMA 617 clears from normal organs in the periphery, at least, and tumor uptake was maintained. Um, yeah, Michael. Uh, Hoffman and co-works in Melbourne took over PSMA 617 and I was really deeply impressed that you placed in Lancet Oncology the first prospective clinical trial uh, on lutetium PSMA 617, the single center, sing single arm phase two study of lutetium 177 uh, PSMA 617 and I guess this uh, made a push also towards the vision trial and we are uh, curious and waiting on first results maybe next year. Coming back to PSMA 617 in Heidelberg, um, Clemens Kratowiel, the therapist in, in the university clinic, dealt at that time for the first time worldwide with actinium labeled PSMA 617, cooperation with uh, Alfred Morgenstern. And you see here, uh, and I'm really, uh, since then, really impressed about it. Complete biochemical remission, and there must happening a tremendous immune response, and that's the reason why we, we went back to preclinical. And uh, now with the second director here at HZDR in Dresden, Rossendorf, we have access to the universal chimeric antigen receptor T cell approach, and the idea is to cross bridge in case of PSMA targeting. Uh, PSMA 11 type molecules to the tumor cell. And on the other side, you have an epitope uh, which reaches out to the chimeric antigen receptor. And we published last year something 
on on this uh, issue and um, we think the combination of our endoradiotherapeutic approach with the immunodiagnostic approach would be a, a, a next step beyond now coming to PSMA 1070, um, we finally published our F18 PSMA ligand series approaches now in 2020. And what we discovered together with Sarel Bajinka in, in Czech Republic Prague, that obviously the fluoronicotinic acid moiety reaches into the arena binding site of PSMA, GCP2. Uh, and this makes the difference to PSMA 617. Uh, in the end, we do not know exactly, but um, the tracer kinetics in vivo is, is uh, um, different from PSMA 617. And Mike uh, in South Africa examined uh, PSMA 1007 and compared it with PYL in one and the same patient. And you see here uh, really the dominant kidney clearance uh, of PYL in comparison to PSMA 1007, which rather uh, clears via the hepatobiliary excretion world and hardly no uptake over two hours is seen in the urinary bladder. Uh, PET, this PET, uh, the strength of PET imaging is uh, early detection also, not only late. So this is really important to give the uh, urologist, for example, in this case, a planning scenario for surgery or the radiotherapist for accelerator therapy. And uh, staging of lymph nodes is really ongoing, I saw it in the clinics. Um, and on the radiochemistry side, uh, PSMA ligands are under further development. Um, when we have a kit approach and combine it with gallium generators, you can get rid of the radiosynthesizers and those centers uh, having no access to cyclotron units or big radio pharmacies, this is the right approach so that the patient can receive here a dose on PSMA ligands. PSMA 11, meanwhile, um, is used for PSMA PET-CT guided radiotherapy. This is a must-have in the future, is my estimation, in the clinics. And the next step beyond could be to combine it through this sense-guided surgery, so pre-staging with PET-CT and the uh, uh, through chrome conjugate um, in the near infrared uh, uh, area uh, would be helpful for the urologist to really uh, dissect more accurately lymph nodes, um, for example, robot assisted by the Da Vinci robot system. Last but not least, we should not forget the other classes of diagnostic tracers on the way to clinical nuclear medicine and for prostate cancer. And we are dealing really with hetero tumor heterogeneity. My impression is that the gastrin-releasing peptide receptor targeting ligands uh, has a high promise to, to also enter prostate cancer imaging and treatment. So that is for the moment, and thank you for your attention. Thanks, Klaus. That was a great introduction. That was a bit of where we've come from and where we are now, and uh, I think that the next speakers are going to be a little bit more futuristic and perhaps some data that people uh, have not seen. Uh, I'll hand over to Howard to introduce Neil Bander. Thank you, Michael. Um, Dr. Neil Bander is a friend, and I, I call him the father of PSMA. Neil has been working on this since the late 1990s and was the first scientist to show, prove an antibody bound to PSMA 
was useful for diagnosis and therapy. Since then, he has prosecuted a lot of great science and significant amounts of clinical research uh, at Wild Cornell in New York. Dr. Bander is a rare surgeon scientist. You don't see many. I can count them on the fingers of my left and right right hands, but a true expert in and futurist in PSMA. So, Neil, what a pleasure to have you speak today. Uh, thank you, Hart. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, we hear you, Neil. Okay, great. And can you see my screen? We can see your screen and we can hear your voice. Great. Okay, so first of all, thanks for the uh, invitation and for the uh, kind introduction. Um, I need to... Start with a housekeeping point. This is uh, my disclosure. Uh, I have uh, two main goals that I want to cover uh, in the next several minutes. One is to tell you what we're doing at uh, Wild Cornell, which I think is um, quite unique in the PSMA field. And as part of that, I, I want to share some uh, unpublished data with you that uh, uh, underpins uh, what what we're doing. And I'm going to have a lot of ground to cover. So please excuse me for going quickly and maybe being a little bit superficial. So I think if we look at the current generation of uh, PSMA targeting, uh, I think you can say it, it uh, is divided into uh, the antibody camp or the, the small molecule camp. Um, personally, I would, uh, take the view that I believe that there is favorable clinical data with both uh, small molecule ligands as well as uh, antibodies. So I'm, I'm moving beyond the um, individual targeting approach. Uh, I must say when the small molecule ligands uh, came on the scene a few years ago, one of the things that uh, struck me immediately was the complementary nature of the small molecules as compared to the to the antibodies. And uh, there's a, a few characteristics here that I would just point out to you. Obviously, there are significant uh, differences in, in size, almost, uh, well, more than a hundredfold difference in size. The uh, PKs are, are, are quite different. The biodistributions uh, are different and essentially non-overlapping except for the tumor. Uh, and, and I'll come back to that later. So uh, again, as a, as a basic point, it seems pretty clear to me that there are two clinically validated targeting options for targeting PSMA in patients, uh, one being the small molecule ligands, and there are several, uh, uh, many of which Claus mentioned, uh, and there are also antibodies, uh, uh, and there are at least two antibodies that have uh, clinical data. Uh, the one with the most clinical data is the one that... Uh, we developed here a number of years ago called J591. And um, on the other side of the equation, there are two clinically validated radionuclide options, those being the beta particles, lutetium-177, being the most commonly used, uh, and um, relatively new to the scene are the uh, alpha particles, such as actinium-225, and for completeness, I should mention uh, thorium as well. Uh, this is a comparison of the alpha and the beta radionuclides. Again, I, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this uh, because of uh, all of the slides I have to cover, but suffice it to say 
that I think the key differences are that uh, the alpha particles are um, roughly a thousand times more potent than the beta particles, and their precision is much greater. They, they cover an area of uh, a much smaller area, maybe three or four cell diameters, so you don't get a lot of uh, extraneous bystander effect. We have uh, presented, this is a, uh, actually an update of data that uh, my colleague Scott Tagawa presented at GU uh, ESCO in February, shortly before uh, uh, the world came to uh, a stop because of COVID. Uh, this um, is data from our phase one single-dose trial with J59, J591 actinium-225. Uh, this is data in 27 patients. Um, some of the key points to make here is that we did not use any patient selection, no imaging. Patients were, did get PSMA PET imaging, but we didn't select on that basis. Uh, this is data from patients who only got a single dose. That's the way the study was designed. There were seven escalating dose levels. All these patients were heavily pretreated, including about half of them who had already failed prior 617 lutetium, and a fifth of them had, uh, had failed uh, radium-223. The uh, treatment was very well tolerated. We only had a single uh, DLT in the group, and we did not actually manage to define a, a, an MTD. Uh, but you can see that uh, roughly half of the patients had a 50% PSA response uh, and also of, of excellent duration. Again, I want to move on for that. So th this, is, this is what is distinguishing what we're doing now um, uh, from others. So I think it's fair to say, while everybody else in the world is looking at either small molecules or antibodies, uh, we at Wild Cornell see a significant potential benefit by approaching this by combining both types of agents for targeting. Uh, I would call this a multidimensional approach. Again, we use both antibody and small molecule ligands. It enables us to, to combine both alpha and beta root radionuclide targeting. And when both of these agents are administered, they, they converge on the cancer and uh, it, it, uh, we envision a potential for a substantially higher and more effective dose to the tumor without added side effects. Now, what are the barriers to doing this? I think there are two key barriers. The first is that often when you try to target the same molecule with two different agents, you run into issues of the agents competing with, with one another for binding. Uh, but we, were, uh, we had mapped the antibody a number of years ago. We didn't really uh, bother to publish the, the mapping, but we knew the mapping of uh, the antibody binding in J591's case was at the apical region. We knew where the small molecule uh, PSMA inhibitors bound, uh, and, and so uh, it was my impression that we would likely not get overlapping binding. And in fact, the, the two graphs to the right demonstrate in two different cell lines that uh, you get additive binding uh, when you use both agents. The, the second key barrier is, is the fact that additional doses of radionuclides uh, above the maximum tolerated dose are generally not tolerable, and, and uh, there ha never has been a clinical trial where two uh, radionuclides were simultaneously 
administered to patients uh, at, at their respective maximum tolerated dose. But uh, again, uh, in this circumstance, uh, these two images you see, uh, uh, at least one of them will be familiar with many of you. On the left, you see the biodistribution uh, in, a, in a normal patient uh, of uh, a PSMA small, small molecule ligand. And on the right, you see the uh, uh, antibody labeled with uh, zirconium uh, 89. These are both PET images. And I hope you can see that the uh, biodistributions of these agents in, in normal tissues is essentially non-overlapping. So what are, the, what are the benefits, the potential benefits of the combination? Well, the first benefit is that the dose to the tumor is the primary determinant of response. And by combining these two targeting agents and radionuclides, uh, we started with the hypothesis that we could get an additive dose to tumor without additive doses to normal tissues. Secondarily, by adding an alpha particle to the beta particle, we can add the potency and precision of the alpha on top of the, the beta particle. And by virtue of this combination, we get uh, uh, an increase in the curability range uh, uh, that is, is, is feasible with this approach. And I'll get to that in the next slide. And we overcome another issue I'll, I'll get to in a couple of slides, which is the shortcoming that very small volume tumor lesions are are relatively poorly treated by small molecule ligands that are labeled with beta particles. So this is a slide from a paper by Joe O'Donohue back in, in 1995. Again, I don't have time to go into great detail, but I think as many of, uh, of you realize, any particular particle has an optimal uh, curability range, as, as Joe called it. Uh, and when you combine two particles that have different ranges, such as in the case of uh, lutetium-177 and actinium-225, you get what looks like the curve at the, uh, on the right side of the screen where you get a wider curability range. A third benefit, a third potential benefit of the combination is that the addition of the antibody uh, we have found actually improves the uptake and retention of the small molecule. Uh, so the result is, uh, and, and I will tell you up front that this came as a surprise to us, uh, but I'll show you some of the data. The result is you not just get an additive dose to tumor, but you actually get a synergistic dose to tumor. And let me uh, cover some um, biology here. I, I think it's uh, clear and uh, understood that uh, tumor cell internalization is a key factor in the efficiency of therapeutic radionuclides. I would add, so is residence time. Uh, you, you may not remember, but back in, uh, in our second publication on PSMA in uh, 1998, we demonstrated the for the first time that PSMA was actually internalized uh, by an endosomal route. And beyond that, uh, when it's constitutively internalized, but when you add an antibody like J591, you actually triple the uptake rate uh, of PSMA. We've looked at the internalization of the small molecules, and what you see is, um, I, don't, I hope you can see my cursor, uh, with the antibody, uh, you get progressive uptake uh, into the tumor cell. This is done over a three-hour period. 
with the small molecule ligands, you reach a maximum uh, and almost a saturation point. And I, uh, I should tell you that this is not due to um, washout of either of these agents because both of these agents are continuously available uh, in this in vitro experiment. And it, it occurs in every cell line that we've looked at. Um, we were not the only ones to note that actually the internalization of the small molecule ligands is seems to be significantly inferior to the internalization you get with an antibody. Beyond that, uh, so when we saw that data, the, the most likely explanation for that is that there is an issue with retention of the small molecule within the tumor cell. And in fact, that's exactly what we found, and that's what's demonstrated on this slide. That is, if you load up the cells with either the antibody or the small molecule, uh, and then wash out uh, those reagents, and then follow what happens to the cells, you see that the antibody uh, is, is very well retained. The antibody and the isotope is very well retained within the cell. And we previously published that has a half-life of 522 hours, so it's effectively uh, in, uh, indefinite. But conversely, the small molecule lutetium tends to wash out of the cell pretty rapidly. And that's particularly uh, true in a, uh, a cell line like CWR22. Uh, we found the reason for that, interestingly enough, is that when you lower the pH, as you see in endosomes, uh, the small molecule comes off of the uh, off of PSMA, and when you reach the uh, pH levels in in, in endosomes, uh, a minority of the uh, small molecule remains bound, and as the endosome recycles to the cell surface, it basically spits out the. Um, uh, the, the ligand and its and its uh, its isotope. I will tell you that uh, it, it spits it out in a um, uh, a complete form. It doesn't take the isotope off uh, the ligand, and and that small molecule ligand isotope can be taken up again by a neighboring cell. When we look at uh, uptake and retention, we see when you combine the antibody, and in this case, the antibody is cold, it's unlabeled, with uh, labeled 617, uh, the antibody improves the uptake of the small molecule ligand, and it improves the retention of the small molecule ligand within the tumor cell. When we move this to an animal model, what you can see here are... Um, Animals um, that are, are growing, in this case, lincap tumors. Uh, on the left side, you see uh, data. So they're, they're administered, groups of animals are administered either radio-labeled 617 or radio-labeled J591 or the combination of the two. And again, I hope you can see my uh, cursor. But uh, so this uh, blue line represents what happens in the tumor uh, over time with the uh, 617 lutetium. That is, is rapid uptake, but progressive loss from the tumor over the 72-hour period of observation. It's exactly the opposite with the antibody, slow uptake, but continued over time. This lighter blue line represents the uh, 
additive amount uh, from the, the individual agents alone. And the upper blue line represents what you see, what we calculate on the basis of imaging in the group of animals that got the combination of the two. In other words, they're getting greater than an additive amount of radioactivity within, within the tumor, a, a, a synergy. And uh, just to confirm that what we were calculating on the basis of the imaging was in fact correct, we autopsied the animals uh, at the end of the experiment at 72 hours. And these are measurements of the counts per milligram of tumor in the different groups. You can see the antibody group uh, actually has more than twice the amount of uptake as the small molecule group. But more importantly, the combination of the two has about 50% greater than the sum of the individual agents alone. Now, we've done this in multiple cell lines. We, this, this is consistent data from one cell line to another. Uh, Ed Fung in our group has calculated uh, the dosimetry here. And, and what this slide is showing you is that the dosimetry of the animals treated with the combination of the two is anywhere from 44 to 65% greater than the sum of the parts. So moving on, I, uh, I want to talk about the fact that the, uh, what is the cause of progression after treatment with either, uh, with either small molecule 617 or INT lutetium, and I'm going to quote uh, from one of our hosts, uh, as well as a few others. But the, the, the common message here is that while you can see very substantial responses in some sites, you get a pattern, as Michael put it, of ultimate progression in, quote, new sites of osseous disease. Uh, and, and Michael and his colleagues postulated that this was due to Lutetia-177 being, being less effective in targeting microscopic deposits. Similar observations by two other um, authors. I think there are others, but I, I, I thought three was enough to make the point. So now I want to uh, discuss with you very briefly why that is. And, and I believe it's for two reasons, one of which is, is the reason I already told you, which is that the agent is not well retained within lesions. And this is particularly true of smaller lesions. And this is a function of the physics of uh, volume versus surface area. The smaller the lesion is, the easier it is for the agent to diffuse away from it. Um, and secondarily, this is a table on the left. Uh, you can see the source here from the Journal of Nuclear Medicine. When you get lesions below the PET imaging um, sensitivity, that is below the five millimeter uh, cutoff or so, what also happens is the amount of energy absorbed from the tissue 177 plummets. So for those two reasons, these uh, subclinical lesions, which exist at the time of, of uh, 617 lutetium therapy, are being inadequately treated. And so I'm going to wrap up by saying that uh, uh, the small molecule and J591 antibody radionuclides individually each demonstrate favorable anti-tumor activity and are well tolerated. These agents can be administered together 
uh, comprising a, a multidimensional therapeutic, and, and there's more I could go into there, but I don't have the time. Our preclinical pre data, uh, which is as yet unpublished, demonstrates a synergistic anti-tumor activity, and we will actually be uh, uh, beginning a clinical trial of this approach in, in uh, uh, probably about six weeks. And I'll uh, end there, and I thank you for your attention. Thanks so much. Uh, fantastic talk, amazing data. Uh, we will hand over to Andrea to introduce our next speaker. And meanwhile, if you have a question, there's a Q&A button in the bottom of your uh, Zoom webinar. You can also vote people's questions up. And at the end, we will just try and answer the few highest uh, questions. Thank you, Michael. It is my great pleasure today to introduce Dr. Christina Mueller, who is the research group leader at the Center for Radio Pharmaceutical Sciences at the Paul Scherer Institute in Switzerland. Dr. Mueller um, has performed the first preclinical studies with PSMA radio ligands using terbium radioisotopes. So today she's going to be telling us about prostate cancer radiotherapy using these terbium radio radioisotopes. So thank you, Dr. Mueller. Can you hear me and see my slides? Yes, perfectly. Everything fine. Okay. Thank you very much for the invitation and this kind introduction. And welcome to my presentation about terbium radioisotopes for prostate cancer targeted radionuclide therapy. So from all of the aspects actually that determine the characteristics of a radioligand, it is the radionuclide which is the relevant part <clears throat> for the expected effect. And therefore, I would like to focus my talk today on novel, potentially interesting radionuclides for theranostic applications. Terbium is unique in that it presents four medically interesting radioisotopes. We call this the four terbium sisters for all four modalities in nuclear medicine, including PET and SPECT imaging, as well as alpha and beta radionuclide therapy. And it is important to recognize that these four sisters are actually equal in size and shape. They differ just little in their uh, weight, but they have totally different characteristics. And today I would like to talk about the alpha-emitting terbium-149 and the beta-emitting terbium-161. And I start with terbium-161 because it is more advanced in terms of production and preclinical application. The production of terbium-161 is performed in analogy to non-carrier-added lutetium-177. So in the case of terbium, gadolinium targets are irradiated at a high flux reactor to produce gadolinium-161. And this decays then to the terbium-161 and can be separated from the gadolinium. This lanthanide separation is very challenging, but it has been established at the Polgeri Institute, and so terbium can be made available at the quality that is actually comparable to commercial lutetium-177. Terbium-161 is a beta-emitting radionuclide with very similar decay characteristics to lutetium-177, but in addition, the decay of terbium-161 also results in the emission of a substantial number of OG and conversion electrons. And these short-ranged electrons, as we have just seen before, they are believed to actually contribute to the therapeutic efficacy of a radioligand, in particular for the eradication of single cancer cells, which may be responsible for relapse. 
So we designed a study to compare terbium-161 and lutetium-177 using PSMA-617. The radio labeling of PSMA-617 with terbium was readily achieved at high molar activities and excellent radiochemical purity, as it is also possible with lutetium. Both radio ligands shown here in red and yellow were actually taken up by PC3PIP tumor cells that express the PSMA, but not by PC3FLU tumor cells that do not express the PSMA. And as expected, we found the same uptake in the tumor, in the positive tumor, but also in the negative tumor, in the blood, liver, kidney, muscle, and any other organs and tissue of mice, irrespective on whether PSMA 617 was labeled with terbium, shown here in red, or lutetium, shown in yellow. And this is a very important message because it indicates that these two radionuclides are interchangeable without compromising the pharmacokinetic profile of the radioligand. Based on the gamma emission of terbium-161, this radionuclide can also be used for SPECT imaging, as we can see it here on this image that visualizes the PC3-PIP tumor that is PSMA-positive on the right shoulder of this mouse where no uptake is seen in the PC3-FLU tumor that does not express the PSMA on the left side. But most important are now the experiments with regard to the therapeutic efficacy, which actually reveal the striking difference between the effect of terbium PSMA-617 and lutetium PSMA-617. So the cells which were actually treated with terbium PSMA-617 showed a significantly reduced viability, shown here in red, as compared to the cells treated with lutetium PSMA-617. And these very exciting results were also confirmed in colony-forming assays that showed a more pronounced reduction in cell survival when the cells were treated with terbium PSMA-617, shown in red, as compared to the treatment with lutetium PSMA-617, shown in yellow. And these results are actually very much in line with theoretical dose calculations recently performed by uh, Jean-Pierre et al., to actually de demonstrate this advantage of terbium PSMA-617 in vivo, it would be most ideal to have a metastasis mouse model available, but this was not the case for us. And therefore, we decided to inject the radioligands two days after tumor cell inoculation before the tumors were actually really developed. In this study, we included a control group, which received only saline, and three groups of terbium PSMA-617 that received actually 2.5 5.0 and 10 megabecquerel activity. We included uh, three additional groups that received lutetium PSMA 617 at the same activity levels. And here we can see the advantage of using terbium PSMA 617 shown in red because it actually reduced the development of the tumor at any of these investigated activity levels as compared to the lutetium PSMA-617. And this was also reflected in the survival curves, which showed a clearly increased survival of the mice that were treated with terbium PSMA-617. So all of these uh, experiments uh, clearly show that terbium is a promising radionuclide for targeted radionuclide therapy. The terbium-149 sister is also very interesting because it decays with a half-life of four hours and the emission of alpha particles. And importantly, the daughter nuclides of terbium-149 do not emit alpha particles, which is certainly an advantage over actinium-225 in terms of the safety profile. 
The production of Terbium-149 is, however, considerably more challenging because it has to be performed at an ISOL facility. In our case, we actually irradiated tantalum targets at the Isolde facility at CERN in Geneva, Switzerland, with high-energy protons to induce a spallation reaction. And the spallation products were then selectively ionized, mass-separated, and finally implanted in a zinc-coated gold foil, which was then shipped to PSI, where the Terbium-149 was separated according to a similar process that was also previously established for Terbium-161. We performed a therapy experiment with different groups of mice that received the Terbium-149 PSMA-617 either in one injection or in two injections at day one and two or at day one and four. And the therapeutic efficacy of Terbium-149 PSMA-617 is clearly visible here on that graph that shows uh, actually delayed tumor growth in all treated groups as compared to the control group. This is also visible in the survival curves, which shows the largest benefit when the radioligand was injected at two consecutive days. I would like to draw your attention now finally to one very interesting feature of Terbium-149, which is actually the fact that it also emits positrons with an energy that is suitable for PET imaging. And this we can see on these beautiful images here of a mouse that actually visualizes the accumulation of Terbium-149 PSMA-617 in the PSMA-positive tumor on the right shoulder, but not on the left, which is the negative uh, tumor. So insofar, terbium-149 is really unique as it is an alpha emitter that also emits positrons and can be used for PET imaging. So what comes next? In terms of the terbium-149, currently ongoing research focuses on the setup of new production facilities that would enable to produce this radionuclide in larger quantities and then also allow to perform more preclinical research that is necessary to investigate terbium-149 in more details for targeted alpha radionuclide therapy. Terbium-161 can be made available in an excellent quality and theoretically in very high activities. Further investigations will nevertheless be necessary to explore the benefit of the OG electron emission for the treatment of disseminated disease. It is foreseen to share the production know-how of Terbium-161 also with other researchers abroad and enable a clinical application of Terbium-labeled radioligands, hopefully in the very near future. I would like to thank all the colleagues who have actually contributed to this very exciting project. We are also very grateful for financial support by many funding institutions and industrial partners. And finally, I would like to thank Professor Roger Schiebli, head of the Center for Radiopharmaceutical Sciences, as well as my colleague, Dr. Nicolas van der Meulen, who is head of the Radionuclide Development Group and has set up the production of all terbium radionuclides at PSI. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you so much, Christina. We're extremely envious of the beautiful view uh, you have uh, of your facility, and thank you for an outstanding uh, talk. We're now going to move uh, to thank South you. Africa. It's a great pleasure to uh, welcome uh, Mike Setegi, who's the professor and head of nuclear medicine at the University of uh, Pretoria. Uh, and of course, a lot of the uh, innovation uh, in Theranostics has come out of South Africa, uh, out of uh, Professor Setegi's unit, and he has a particular interest in uh, alpha therapies. Um, but of course, 
As we introduce new therapies and indeed diagnostics in prostate cancer, we're often challenged uh, by the affordability of these. Uh, And it's been really quite encouraging to see that for for us as urologists uh, working in PSMA imaging, we've seen a lot of um, uh, interesting availability of this type of imaging in low and middle income countries when in other countries like the USA, for example, there's very limited access. And I think the same may be so for um, Theranostics. So we've asked uh, Mike to talk about uh, Theranostics in low and middle income countries, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you so kindly, Luther. And uh, really thanks to Mike and Howard and uh, Andrea for putting up this uh, wonderful thing and to the colleagues. So indeed, uh, the low to medium uh, income uh, countries are really having uh, issues of uh, what do you do uh, and what uh, uh, do you prioritize as therapies. I'll try and outline what is happening in that part of the world as well as uh, uh, demonstrating what is comparable to what uh, should be recommendations. It is important to know that um, we are first uh, having aggressive diseases. By virtue of uh, many of the low-income countries, there will be uh, diverse uh, populations, and some of the diverse populations lends us with uh, high-risk patients that might be aggressive by the time they present, for instance, compatibility, is different between uh, same stage and uh, same lesson uh, scoring of patients. And of course, the many uh, chemotherapies that are available, of course, not extending the overall survival by far, they are expensive and availability is an issue as we outlined it. And that's a problem for us as well. So of course, Indeed, we do have issues of the choice of therapy. What do you do now? Because most of our therapies, they also, our patients, they come with the advanced stage of presentation. So are you going to actually subject this patient to a radiation therapy? Probably not. You don't operate at that stage as well. And as one has said, the availability is not there. So these therapies, such as theranostics, really lends itself well as a good opportunities for us to actually come with different sequencing First, of course, it is about whether we with the imaging first as uh, theranostics uh, prescribed. You will realize that I mean, Mike there has actually done a great job in outlining a prospective study that indeed we do have uh, a lot of uh, advantages with what is conventionally known. I mean, if you are going to have almost 80% superiority compared to the conventional imaging. It's something that we have to consider strongly to actually move across and really abandon the conventional. And doing doing so, you actually also end up with a radiation that is very less and changing the management in uh, those patients. It's something that is calling for us to actually change the guideline for both research as well as routine to say that perhaps uh, this uh, PSMA imaging should be the way to go. And indeed, the Klaus has mentioned this. In doing so, we obviously have issues of PSMA going forward, it's something great and we have to actually embrace it. In South Africa, for instance, this is something that is really is starting to be really available and we are thankful to the uh, NEXA NTP for doing this. It would help a lot to make sure that uh, indeed, uh, people that don't have their gallium generators don't actually get to be left out of these uh, opportunities. But what is happening as well is you will realize that obviously the bone scanning is what is the mainstay in a, a low 
to medium income countries, endemic countries. But we actually want to use this opportunity to try and say, but bone scanning is not the way to go. As you can see in uh, two different studies uh, from our sides and other people, that it definitely doesn't help. You understage the patients. And of course, the Australians have also demonstrated that. So indeed, we really have to really try and, and, and really be uh, aggressive in advocating that that, that should actually um, alter the things. And I'll be interested to hear what the urologists and oncologists are saying about this to actually move it out of the headlines or at least a supplement with a gallium PSMA or fluorine PSMA. However, we do realize that, of course, in these countries, there might not be availabilities of a PET scanning. So under such circumstances, technician PSMA is actually a good suggestion as well. It does work well. Of course, you might have issues with low volume diseases, but if you look at this slide, that shows clearly that, I mean, if you're going to have PSA around 3.54, you are not going to be worse off than the uh, gallium uh, scanning. So that is something to actually embrace. Uh, and of course, it will help you select patients that will benefit from lutetium or actinium. So in terms of theranostics, so technician-based, uh, technician-enabled PSMA, it's something that is uh, actually very good uh, for, for, for many countries that we are having, at least in, 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 in Southeast Asia and, and, and South Africa and Africa. Now, coming to the therapies part of it, if the imaging is going to go progressively well, of course, there are issues that we actually with the patients. We know that obviously the target has to be positive for the patients, but of course, the suitability also have to speak about FDG. It becomes a little bit of a problem, of course, to actually enroll patients based on the FDG. It is a great thing. It's obviously well-informed. And, of course, it's it's done mostly in Europe and, and Australia and, and, and other parts of the developed countries. Often we find ourselves having to rely only on the PSA scans and not on the on, 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 on the on the FDG. So that is a little bit of an issue that people have to be aware. Yes, we are cognizant of what is happening in terms of the FDG that is concordant and so on, or disconcordant, therefore not treating. But perhaps we have to divert, uh, you know, come up with the issues of the SUV max that will actually eliminate patients that will not benefit versus those that will benefit. Of course, they have uh, been mentioned by Neil uh, about um, the alphas and, and and Peters together with Christina as well. So now if we are going to treat starting with lutetium, it's a great thing. And of course, it is evolving in our part of the world, just, just like it is evolving in your part of the world. Uh, and, I mean, again, uh, the, the Melbourne team, uh, Mike, you have demonstrated clearly that you can treat with lutetium and then you can have good remission. And again, there can be, uh, uh, of course, resurgence. And then of course, in the low, medium, Income countries, we have demonstrated, I mean, the, 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 the group of India we, with this uh, meta-analysis, the, 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 the good usages of, 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 of um, PSMA and lutetia. And that's why then we, we are at Vision uh, 3. Of course, we have to, uh, in my conclusion, I'll speak about exclusion of perhaps uh, low to medium income countries, which, which is something that we have to revisit. And to this effect, of course, we do have guidelines that we have put across to try and customize things of how do we utilize things like lutetium PSMA in, in our country and in Africa, for instance, taking care of the fact that some of the things that one has mentioned are not available in some of the therapies. And that is where we actually might be reliant on things like the SUV max and, and, and not only FDG, if it's uh, the finances that will preclude us from uh, the FDG uh, being involved. So um, there was a study that was done by OMT, and then that included the low uh, medium income countries. That study using lutetium, of course, uh, PSMA 617. It's a very good study in that it shows 
going to have the success of therapies. I mean, patients that are going to be having ECOC of two, we know that they might not do well, but that's well known, but at least it's better to document it as you can see the overall survival is not good. Patients that have got extensive bone metastasis, as one as alluded to, our patients are often late and they will come with extensive bone metastasis. So what does that mean? So we actually are already at the back of the wall, so we might want to start aggressively. If you realize on 25 to 10, that's a real big difference if they've got extensive bone metastasis. And of course, soft tissue metastasis is important, but not things like lung or, or, or lymph nodes. If you look at the liver, the liver metastasis is really, really uh, something that really almost helps the, 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 the overall survival. And that's really something important to note when we do select the patients. And, 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 and of course, we might speak about how we optimize those therapies. Chemotherapy is something interesting and something that we really have to be open-minded about. As you can see, I mean, clearly patients that have had chemotherapy, either the second and first or both, they really are worse off than those that didn't have it. And that's something interesting. Of course, there are studies that shows the opposite, but more and more studies are demonstrating that chemo might be a, 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 a something to watch out for. So what does that speak to in terms of the sequencing? So, and, and then, of course, for us in the limit, it's something else that we have to consider. So, one way of uh, including the patients for actinum versus lutetium is that uh, it was published by the Heidelberg group. You will see that the recommendations was that you should take the diffuse metastasis versus the spot pattern. But then again, if you look at the Australian study, that's interesting to note that really uh, recently diffuse uh, bone marrow involvement is not actually an exclusion of, 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 of um, patients for lutetium. And indeed, if you look at the PSA, the, 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 the PSA decline by 50, it's actually encouraging. So what do we do about that? And again, again, the triaging of uh, lutetium versus uh, actinum, it's interesting, but Klaus has spoken briefly about actinum. It's something great, yes. Something that is uh, something that we've considered. At the beginning, we started with bismuth labeling. And, uh, we have we had to abandon it um, for lack of better already because of the issues of uh, the half-life, which was not so favorable. And then we have, we have had to move to actinum because of its uh, half-life and issues of internalization and therefore really much more ideal. So what type of uh, patients are we treating then with uh, actinum? There are several types. As you would have seen, the, in, the, the recommendation was that you might want to treat this type of patients, the severe and sort of super scan. But in our setup, we actually treat a whole host of patients, as you can see, again, because of the availability of resources and what works. But is it wrong to actually treat patients, say, with oligometastasis or soft tissue only? Probably not, if you look at how actually it works. I mean, the short path of uh, actinium, it, it does tell you that, I mean, you need to be intracellular way from where the, the source will be to actually hit the, 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 the cancer. So clearly you will obviously be confined to the to, 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 to the metastasis or to the tumor and you will spare the bone marrow because obviously it will be extracellular in origin. So that's a very good thing, meaning that actually will be confined here. But similarly, if it's traveling a short path, you might actually be wanting to consider not only high uh, bearing of disease, but those with low diseases. But again, it's something again that really a uh, why do do that issues, and then of course the tumor sink effect comes into a problematic uh, effect here. So now moving across, uh, you'll see that I mean recently we have had a study published from uh, mid low to mid income country India demonstrating the effects of um, uh, of actinium. I mean it demonstrates 
that clearly, if you look at um, the um, reduction in uh, more than 50% of PSA, that's, that across all the studies, it becomes much more superior than lutetium, and which is encouraging. And of course, you will see in our setup of uh, patients, we have seen that those that were not treated with the chemotherapy, which I'll come to, they really actually have even a much better situation. But you could argue that those patients are really earlier on, but there are problems. As I have said, the more you've got bone metastasis, the more... The argument of that might not be the only issue of actually uh, saying why they are doing better. And of course, we do have uh, the issue of demonstrating clearly from, uh, again, uh, from Munich that patients could be treated 10 times with lutetium, but they will still benefit from lutetium as well, from, from actinium. However, if you look at what we have demonstrated as well, that really you actually post lutetium, the response is there, but it's not as great. So, what do you do then under such circumstances? So, this uh, uh, demonstrate that really we need to optimize the sequencing here. This uh, work from uh, Clemens uh, in, in Heidelberg, you can see that they've got a patient that is five years post-actinium therapy. That is actually great thing yes, to, to embrace. And um, five years, that's not bad. Yes, you might want to argue about the salivary gland. Probably the function is still uh, at least based for, from what they have said. And we have that obviously our chemo knife patient that we have done. And they are doing well, most of them, and they really don't have any problem. As you can see, having com a complete remission in 41%, that's really a, a, a commendable number. So we have since followed up these patients, and uh, they are doing well, most of them. And that is, uh, again, great uh, a great thing for us to have. This is just demonstrating, again, uh, some of them. Yes, uh, the argument of saying they could have done better because they were really chemo-naive, but if, if you really have this extensive metastasis, really clearly, that also balances. And you look at the virus. And, and, and the, in the bloods, they really remain within uh, the normal limits during the kidneys, and that is again encouraging. Yes, now the issue of the salivary gland, especially with something else, obviously, we know that it's not only because of the PSMA positive cells, but there could be an issue of the small molecular transporters. And I think Babi could actually speak to this uh, in, in the next talk. But if you see the work of Christina Mulayon, of uh, the new uh, PSMA, EBUDAP PSMA, uh, in brief, because that will be discussed. That is an interesting thing. So we have tried two strategies. So those this, those uh, de-escalation and, of course, uh, the, the the new the, the new uh, albumin binding PSMA. This is very interesting. So at least in the work that we have done uh, so far, you can see that the salivary lens in terms of the dosimetry, they really are performing relatively better to the conventional or routinely available PSMA. That is actually very good. If you look at this PSA uh, lutetium, a scan of the first cycle and the fourth cycle, the patient is now discharged. That is very great. And so far, there hasn't been any uh, uh, big complaints in terms of the, uh, the salivary gland functioning. And that is something that is great based on the work of, uh, of Christina. And as I say, probably the next speaker will actually elaborate on this. But this is uh, the novelty that we have to embrace, given that in the developing countries, if you want to call it that, we, we might actually uh, be utilizing uh, lutetium and actinium more than radiation therapy as well as uh, chemotherapy. So at least we've got to make sure that the salivary dent are preserved. So moving forward again, when we treat, of course, we do uh, have patients that... To get big starts, the rich challenge is also a feasible thing, feasibility thing, and it does work well. We have seen several of our patients, however, that sometimes they do come up with their brain metastasis when they come back again if they if they do relapse. Something again to uh, study on the long term. 
So yes, there are some patients that we don't treat as we can see clearly that for for the challenge we try by all means to at least perform at the FDG unlike in the first instances given the resources and of course if there is a discordant discordant, we don't actually treat the patients and that's uh, that's the way it goes so something that one wants to again uh, get the debate on and, and the way forward several studies have demonstrated that patients after chemotherapy don't do well I have alluded to that one study that included several countries from uh, low to medium countries medium income uh, low to medium um, income countries uh, that demonstrated chemotherapy is not doing well but you we can see clearly again a, a, a two a developed countries uh, first world countries have shown the same and then of course if you look at the uh, survival that's 27 versus 10 that's really uh, almost a third difference so what do we do with that information similarly if you look at the second uh, generation you can see that, I mean, I mean that's uh, 8 versus 15 almost. That's something that we, we have to do something about it. Of course, I'll be interested to hear what the therapy study uh, is going to uh, uh, come up with from Australia. But at least in the meantime, we've also started with something new, not yet published. It will be coming soon. We are labeling now Actinum with Iwidab uh, from uh, Christina's lab. You can see clearly that it's actually working well. If you do see this patient, has actually done very well. And if you look at the bloods in terms of the the hemoglobin and and platelets, again, that is within the acceptable and normal limits. So whilst we're having something that is actually going less to the salivary gland, but we can still achieve the results. And this is an exciting job, exciting chapter of could we then uh, really embrace this uh, new uh, type of uh, PSMA? And we'll hear the next speak on that. So, in conclusion, one wants to say that, yes, a look in the in the low to medium income countries, we, we are really going to be dealing with the theranostics. We are embracing it because we have problems of late presentation and we have problems of non-availability of some of the chemotherapies. So in chemotherapy-naive patients, we might actually have to try and look at it and have a prospective study going forward. We do. We definitely need to explore the potential mechanism to optimize PSN, such as, of course, the EBITDA, that one has mentioned about the immunotherapies that might be there and other combination therapies that might actually help. And then, of course, uh, issues of tandem treatment with lutetium and, and actinium that might be there. So we need to, put, uh, to, to, to optimize this. And, of course, when we do perform the trials, I think it is important that uh, the uh, limit countries are really actually be uh, included. That would actually speak to real-world experience. And, of course, it will help with the limited access that we do have, and that's, that's essential. And clearly, we need those collaborations to happen. There's an, there's an, there's an action study on actinium PSMA 617 that's ongoing between South Africa and Australia. That thanks start. thanks and so much, Mike. Ma- I, I might cut you through because we've got two speakers left and uh, we're, everyone's going a little bit over time and we need to uh, stop sharply at 90 minutes. That's our deadline. Mm-hmm. But that was a fantastic talk and uh, amazing stuff that's happening in South Africa. Uh, I'd like to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Anna uh, Keese, who's Assistant Professor in the Department of Radiation Oncology at John Hopkins University. John Hopkins has an incredible history uh, in nuclear medicine and also radiation oncology. Uh, Anna completed a, a postdoctoral fellowship with Marty Pomper, uh, who's really one of the doyans of uh, PSMA. Uh, so, and she's going to talk about OJ emitters. We hear a lot about betas and uh, alphas, but we rarely hear about OJs, and it's a really... Uh, exciting area, so we're going to switch back to 
uh, some preclinical domain, and I'm just going to have to ask the last two speakers to really strictly speak, uh, keep to under 10 minutes, please. Thank you. Thank you for having me. These are my clinical research disclosures. So many of us are not as familiar with Auger electron emitters. These are radioisotopes that decay by electron capture, where the inner shell electron is captured by the nucleus or internal conversion, where an unstable nucleus results in ejection of an inner shell electron. And the vacancy results in a spectrum of low-energy outer shell Auger electron emissions. And um, here are some examples of uh, more commonly used OJ electron emitters. And even though these um, OJ electrons have very low energy, they deposit the dose over a very short range, usually less than one micron in the nanometer range, so a subcellular range. And therefore, they have a higher linear energy transfer than beta particles. In comparison with alpha particles, they also have a short range in the 50 to 100 micron range of uh, several cell lengths and have an even higher linear energy transfer. Both of these potentially have benefits um, because of these properties for increasing antitumor efficacy and decreasing toxicity, especially for treatment of micrometastases where you may have small clusters of cells in normal organs. And these are both potential ways to further improve the therapeutic ratio for PSMA-targeted radioligands um, to improve tumor control ratio versus normal tissue damage at a given radiation dose. We investigated the OJ emitter iodine-125 DCI-BCL, which was developed in the Pomper Laboratory about 10 years ago, and it's a urea-based small molecule we first investigated in a flanked tumor xenograft model. This is with nude mice bearing PC3, PIP, or flu flanked tumor xenografts. And you can see with a very large dose of 111 mega there was a very significant delay in tumor growth um, compared to all of the control groups and compared to PSMA-negative flu tumors. We then, um, with... My colleague Ilman developed a PSMA-positive micrometastatic model using PSMA-positive PC3 cells expressing firefly luciferase. When these cells are injected intravenously, they formed tumors in the liver, as in uh, the B panel, kidney in C, and bone in D. The lesions are detectable by bioluminescence imaging at two to three weeks, and we um, use this for treatment of micrometastases by treating um, after one week after injection of the cells before there was detectable metastases. And um, we were able to show an increase both in time to new metastases with those and, or time to detectable metastases and in survival. So the Kaplan-Meier curves for freedom from detectable metastases and surviving fraction after treatment showed about a doubling in survival at the higher doses of one or three millicuries. Furthermore, we also treated at these doses non-tumor-bearing immunocompetent CD3 mice and followed them for toxicity um, for up to a year. And there was a very healthy weight gain in the animals that was not dose-dependent, and there was no changes in their mean urine protein. And we did necropsy 
um, at various time points up to a year. And then necropsy showed no, specifically no damage in um, any organs, but we were interested particularly in kidney toxicity. And you can see that the size of the kidney and the health of the tubules was almost identical in the animals that had received the large dose of 111 megabecquerels a year prior. And this was in very stark contrast with our findings of an almost identical compound labeled with the alpha uh, emitter astatine 211, um, where in healthy mice, uh, six months after treatment with 1.5 megabecquerels of the urea-based 211-astatinated compound, there was severe subcortical atrophy, very small size of the kidneys, and degenerative loss of proximal tubules. And this correlated with death of the animals due to long-term toxicity. Um, And uh, the animals treated with higher doses um, developed kidney toxicity earlier than those treated with lower doses. And in this model, even animals that had received only three microcuries of astatine, PSMA6, um, ultimately developed nephrotoxicity that was lethal. So comparing the alpha and OJ emitters, these are not head-to-head comparison, but they had in the micrometastatic model that we described a a similar delay in growth, tumor growth, but very stark contrast in toxicity with no deaths even after one year at 100 times higher doses in the OJ compound versus um, a maximum tolerated dose of one microcurie in the alpha compound. So, of course, we were interested in looking at the dosimetry to correlate with these outcomes. And the OJ emitter iodine-125 TCIBCL did have uptake in the kidney. And um, using Monte Carlo simulation for dosimetry with my colleague Rob Hobbs, we found that at the organ level, the mean absorbed dose to the kidney was about 60% lower than to the PSMA-positive tumor. Some of the difference in toxicity compared to the alpha emitter may be related to the higher kidney uh, absorbed dose, uh, which was about two and a half times higher than the tumor for the astatine agent. And this was partially due to the half-life of astatine being seven hours versus iodine-125 has a half-life of 60 days. And um, there, furthermore, though, we looked at the tissue level and cellular level dosimetry given the short range of both of these agents. And these are actually images using an alpha camera after the um, infusion of astatine to 11 PSMA6 showing um, uptake in the PSMA positive PIP tumors, but not the PSMA negative flu tumors uh, with uptake, um, focal uptake in the following the vascular patterns. In the kidney, the uptake was focal to the uh, proximal tubules with about 10 times higher focal dose to the proximal tubules. And then at the subcellular level, we used a fluorescent um, confocal microscopy of um, a fluorescent urea-based drug. And one hour after treatment found that a significant portion of the agent localized to the uh, mitotic spindle poles in the perinuclear area, as well as the cell membrane and some uh, cytoplasmic uptake. This is in the PSMA-positive PC3 PIP cells, whereas other, 
other groups have found that there's not significant perinuclear localization of PSMA in renal tubules. So incorporating this as, lo- as well as a kidney nephron model developed by Dr. Hobbs, we found that with our OJ emitter, iodine-125 DCI-BZL, at the doses we administered to the mice, the PSMA-positive tumor cells nucleus received a dose of 100 gray, and the kidney proximal tubule nucleus only 2 gray, which I think correlates well with our clinical findings, or preclinical findings. And in conclusion... We found that PSMA-targeted OJ emitter therapy um, has the capacity to improve survival in mouse models of prostate cancer, both in the microscopic micrometastatic model and in the flank tumor model. We did not observe any toxicity with this therapy in comparison with significant late kidney toxicity seen with a almost identical acetonated agent. And I think we highlighted the importance of microdosimetry for understanding toxicities, especially for alpha and OJ emitters. The particular OJ emitter we use does have radiation safety challenges for clinical translation given the long half-life and gamma emissions, but we feel that this warrants further investigation. And we look forward to further future investigations with OJ emitters. And thank you very much. Thanks so much, Anna. That was a great talk and some amazing images. Uh, I think there really is a lot of promise with OJ emitters. I'm going to hand back to Howard to introduce our uh, last speaker, and uh, there's a whole bunch of questions, and we're going to run out of time, I think, for questions at the end, and we may transfer those questions to our uh, Twitter feed and just answer them over the next few days. We might pick a question and just uh, run through them and get some thoughts on that. So back to Howard. Or if Howard's Thank there. you, Michael. It's my distinct pleasure to introduce Dr. John Babich, from the Weill Cornell Medical College, who is a professor of radiopharmaceutical sciences in the Department of Radiology. John is truly a world-class expert on radiochemistry and experimental radiology. John, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Howard. Thank you, Declan and Michael, for inviting me and for being part of this uh, very interesting seminar. Uh, you've given me a, a, a many many opportunities to challenge myself, and getting this all in eight minutes may, by the, may be the biggest one. So, uh, without further ado, my disclosures. Uh, and of course, we saw these images. Uh, well, we didn't see these images. See the next images. The early PSMA imaging uh, that was done with the iodinated compounds told us a lot about the um, differences in the pharmacokinetics and how that would impact tumor uptake. And this is the, the first images that were ever uh, generated in humans with these molecules. The structures are up on the top left-hand side. Patient was his own control. Uh, and you see the ability to show uh, lesions in both the soft tissue and bone, uh, hearkening a, a new ear in, in, in uh, prostate cancer imaging. In this study, which was a phase one imaging study, we looked at pharmacokinetics. You could see that we were looking at two and a background ratios from a diagnostic perspective, but from the point of view of understanding potential therapeutics, when you looked at the tumor activity as a function of time here on the bottom left-hand side, you can see one of these structures had a, a much different pharmacokinetic profile within the tumor itself, and we'll come back to that. That led us to uh, develop the following compound, with that, that compound with I-131, uh, which uh, uh, Klaus uh, introduced to you earlier on in the talk, and there was this was uh, 1095, which went into uh, compassionate use therapeutic uh, pro- protocols in Heidelberg, 
You see tremendous uptake and retention as a function of time here on these PET scans, and obviously you open the door for um, uh, making uh, small molecules uh, uh, part of the armamentarium for, for targeted radiotherapy. Then, of course, the advent of the chelates uh, introduced into these structures and the 617 compound uh, that the Heidelberg Group and uh, Miriam Betasova introduced with, with Klaus's group opened the door further. We know a lot about uh, what's happening clinically and the, and the wrap-up of the phase three trial that Novartis is running. But in terms of the overall uh, gestalt of what's happening here, we see favorable dosimetry in these meta- late-stage metastatic cancerous and prostate cancer patients. We see, obviously, in earlier patients that Mike just showed us, and convincing response in both uh, in regards to drop in PSA levels and also radiographic uh, findings. However, there's a, a big chunk of patients that don't respond to lutetium, even though they have demonstrable uptake. And uh, other non-responders uh, suggest there might be an insufficient dose delivered or possibly some underlying biology or both. And so we took a, as a challenge in my laboratory to see what's, how, how do we actually improve the delivery of radionuclides to the, to, the, uh, to, the, to the tumor. Now, this has also been bolstered and I think supported as, as a, a reason to make improved ligands by the work that was done to Peter Mack uh, and, and, and Michael's uh, work and, and the also uh, backed up by some more work out of Heidelberg with 1095. And that is if you don't have a particular level of, of uh, accumulation of these ligands, you don't get a particular dose, you will not see, a high probability, you will not see a greater than 50% decline in these patients. And so one, one out of 11 patients uh, that receive a tumor dose less than 10 gray, this is a, a whole body um, tumor burden dose, uh, achieve, uh, are able to achieve this response greater than 50%. And so this is, again, implying that we're not getting enough activity to the tumor. And so how do we improve upon that? So the challenge is, can we do this? Uh, what are the ways of doing that? One is to try to gen- generate compounds that actually improve tumor uptake and or retention. Again, another phenomena that, uh, uh, that Neil Bander alluded to. And I, I would comment that I, I think uh, retention is probably a function of the ligand, um, not just the class, but also the ligand itself, as we saw 1095 at five days out there. But also the possibility of increasing lethality by adding alpha emitters. And of course, this comes with another dimension of toxicity, as we, as we heard. So our approach is really to look at a double targeting concept. And that is, you know, first order targeting was let's get these compounds in the blood. Uh, we didn't necessarily want to mimic uh, antibodies per se, but we wanted to be able to compartmentalize this at least at some point in a, in a, a manageable and predicted manner. The second part is to make sure that the the compounds were able to identify the target at a cellular level. And so we generated a compound that had an albumin-associated uh, moiety attached to it. Uh, it would bounce on and off albumin reversibly, allow it to sort of hang around the blood for a longer period of time, um, basically make it maybe a little less accessible to normal tissue, to the, the PSMA on the other side of a normal tissue capillary that may be found in the salivary glands or the kidneys. And I think there's lots, lots to be said about what else is going on there. Um, the modest affinity basically allows us to, to, to hitchhike um, and, and get into multiple cycles to the tumor bed, which would allow us to get more uptake in the tumor. The second component, obviously, is second order. It's really cellular targeting at a nanomolar level. And here, the same molecule has on the other end of it a, 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 an affinity for the target that's a thousandfold higher than albumin. So if it does, in fact, interact with PSMA, it's going to jump off. It's going to be trapped by that. And, of course, that phenomenon leads to internalization, as we know. 
Now, there's some been, some great work by colleagues of uh, Christina Mueller's in, at uh, the ETH looking at a, a library of albumin binders. This happens to be published back in 2008. And it turns out this iodinated butyric acid, uh, iodophenyl butyric acid derivative is, is a very nice synthetic compound, which you can actually add to other molecules to enhance albumin binding. And it's also been interesting to look at that even modest changes, whether changing the, the uh, halogen or changing the spacing between what's attached to it to a lysine, uh, will actually change the affinity for albumin slightly. And that slight change will actually give a dramatic difference in the plasma curve. So there's a way of actually uh, almost using a sort of fine-tuning mechanism to get this to change your plasma curve to what you think would be optimal. And this has been shown to be true uh, certainly with the idophenylbutanoic acid derivatives that Christine has also published on in her work in developing folate receptor ligands, and other people have used it for uh, small proteins. So that concept has been something that we pulled together. Um, I'm going to try to jump through this as fast as I can, and since I probably have two minutes left. We had a PSMA pharmacophore and albumin pharmacophore. We basically pulled them together, made a series of compounds uh, and I'm just jumping to the one that we like best, the sort of Goldilocks compound that has about a 15 nanomolar affinity for PSMA and 11 micromolar affinity for albumin. And we get these very nice uh, images. These are I-124 labeled. See this nice biodistribution. This would be particularly interested. I, I should talk to Anna after this about putting astatine on this since we get very good uptake. It's equivalent roughly to PSMA 617 with lutetium, where we get some very nice clearance from the kidney. The limitation on this, and again, I'm, I'm going to jump through this. Limitation on this is that obviously it doesn't have a chelate. It doesn't have um, a way to put a metal on there. And it's also impossible to change one aspect of that molecule without changing both the PSMA affinity and the albumin binding. And so we took it to the next level and we broke these molecules apart, basically separating them spatially with a, with a spacer or a, a scaffold of some sort with the PSMA domain, you have the albumin binding domain, and then we can actually put pretty much anything here. We put fluorescent dyes on here. We put the doter on here. We put sarcophagine with Paul Donnelly. Uh, we put macropar on there for actinium. This has been a very robust uh, PSMA binding. And in fact, we've done fat ligands with this uh, as well, which, which actually will look very nice as well. So this kind of structure, we can actually now fine-tune each component of this in order to look at how that affects biodistribution for the intent of increasing tumor uptake and potentially minimizing off-target localization. And you can see just in this sort of pyramidic um, geometry here that we keep expanding, extending the space between what's binding PSMA and what's binding albumin. And we have this concept that was kind of cartoonish in our head of, of letting out a kite string. And the more you let it out, the more likely it would be to interact with something farther away while you're sitting in a canoe, maybe going down a river, maybe that's the bloodstream. And then you were able to have the other component of the, of the molecule interact while you're still bouncing off albumin and extending your plasma life. And we were able to make compounds of these series with these relatively larger structures, all with PSMA affinities uh, less than 10 nanomolar. And when we look at this in biodistribution studies, we see that there's a, a nice trend. There's an improvement in tumor uptake compared to 617. Uh, we're getting 20 to 30% per gram in the LINCAP model. Uh, we also see that we have pretty high uptake in the kidney. If you look at this, you know, we look, look, look through, through these sort of a zigzag, you'll see that the, the larger pegs, we're losing tumor uptake. We're also dropping kidney activity. And so it looks like there's a phenomena that we'll come back to in a second. But if you look at what's happening in the tumor alone, uh, we get about a fourfold increase in the absorbed dose of the tumor when we calculate the area under the curve for 
the lutetium versions of these trifunctional ligands compared to PSMH617. And this has been driven by the plasma curve. So here we have plasma uh, activity as a function of time for all these ligands, including PSMH617, which is down here. It's very rapidly excreted. But you see also that there's a dose integral to the tumor based on that tumor activity. We also look at the extended size of these the molecules or their geometry. As you extend them, you actually start to get a relationship that, that drops kidney activity. And this is actually something that we wanted to pursue in the next iteration of this. And so this is another series of compounds that we made purely to try to keep the, the left side of the molecule. And if you say the chelator is the central part of this, even though it's the, the compounds I just showed you were somewhat lopsided and that the PSMA was always extended to the left, if you shorten that PSMA binding domain attachment point to the, to the chelator and then extend the albumin binding away from that, we believe that the, the chelator has complementary bindings of PSMA, so it's part of the overall in, enhanced binding, that this is another phenomenon we need to study. So we created a, a match pairs. We have two compounds with short albumin binders, uh, short spacers, uh, a, a, a weak albumin binder and a stronger albumin binding, and then, then an extended spacer uh, to the right of the chelator uh, junction. And that also has a weaker or a stronger albumin binder. These have uh, uh, affinities for albumin that are, are roughly uh, less than a micromolar, up to about 20 micromolar, and affinities somewhere between 11 and one and a half nanomolar for PSMA. So they're kind of in the range for PSMA and variable for PSMA uh, for albumin. And what we see, this is a three-hour uh, gallium imaging, is a quite a different uptake as a function of time, at least, in the, with these molecules, and that we see that the the, the compounds that have a, an extended size have a lower kidney activity than the ones with, that, are, that are shorter. They're more access, we believe, to the PSMA in the kidneys. We also see that uh, the ones that, that have a stronger binding to albumin have greater uptake. And these, in fact, we were get about 35% per gram versus we get about 12% per gram in this model with, with PSMA 617. So it was giving us maybe a five or six-fold improvement in uptake. And we also saw that as, as you looked at um, activity, as you made these molecules smaller and still had that binding domain, you had more and more uh, strength and bind to albumin, and that inhibited uptake into the tumor. So now, now we're playing almost like a, 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 an antibody. If it was weaker and smaller, they gave us uh, a higher uptake compared to the larger one, but we had higher kidney. So we're tr constantly trading off uh, features of these things. Uh, and then we went to the bond distribution with lutetium with those same four compounds. And the compound that struck us the most here is this compound on the right-hand side. And this is a bond distribution lutetium, again, in LINCAPS at 424, 96 hours, showing that after, after 24 hours, there's really very little anywhere that we could find in these animals except in the tumor. And this pr provoked us really to do some therapy studies, but we didn't want to do it at that time with lutetium. Uh, so we went to the next step, and for time, I'm going to run through we pursued this with actinium. The actinium uh, chelator that we use is what is known as macropa or macropa. This is a, a, a chelator developed by my colleague, Justin Wilson in Ithaca. And this is a beautiful chelate for actinium. It labels at room temperature, neutral pH quantitatively. And we went ahead and did a long-term bond distribution study using this compound in mice, again, with LINCAPS over a three-week period. And the three-week period allows us to understand, you know, can we, would it be even feasible to go uh, into therapy studies. And so you see four hours, 24, green is a week, then two weeks, then three weeks. And you see after about 24 hours, there's very little anywhere in the body. Again, similar to what we saw with lutetium after 96 hours, 
except in the tumor. And those ratios of tumor to kidney, tumor to blood are actually going up pretty quickly uh, as a function of time. So we took this into a therapy study. We actually did a uh, control again and treated lint cap tumors. These are caliper measurements of tumor volume as a function of time from the injection of either vehicle, a single microcurie, two microcuries, or four microcuries given one time, and then measured them over time. So we had the ability to actually uh, essentially cure these animals. I, I would argue we didn't do a full tox study on these, but we were actually keen to do that in uh, to look at, at kidney toxicity. Uh, but we were actually able to, to wipe these tumors out with a single injection. And I think this brings us to uh, a sort of in, in, in sort of a, a summary of where we're at, that we can actually modify the pharmacokinetics dramatically by changing features that were built into the structure, that the spatial geometry of these influences these interactions, in particular the albumin and, and, the, and the PSMA binding domain, and that the spacer length or geometry has a dramatic effect on normal tissue clearance as well as the interaction with the target. And the target to normal tissue is tissue ratios can be improved by modifying these structures. Now, again, it'd be quite interesting to go back to Neil's point about egress of these things. We haven't studied that. They tend to be in the tumors you saw out to three weeks, uh, and it'd be quite keen to actually compare uh, egress as a function of structure. The strategy has the the potential to improve the therapeutic index. And I have to say that uh, we're planning clinical studies sometime, it should be 2021, uh, hopefully at, at our institution here, while Cornell. But um, I, I wanted to share with you what's really pretty exciting data, and that is what uh, Christina. I'm sorry, I'm going to. Uh, uh, hopefully, you weren't going to show this, but you know, this paper just came out, and, and uh, it's actually quite remarkable uh, of work that Christina's group and and the group at um, at, at, at Paul Scher has done in um, including an albumin binding domain into these structures. And you see this very nice series of, of images. Uh, you see the curve on the right-hand side basically showing an improvement in tumor uptake. And again, I, without getting into all of this, we see a, a one, you know, one and a half to two uh, fold increase in the absorbed dose to the tumor lesions based on dosimetry that was done. It's a very nice paper. It's, I, I just found that I don't want to actually hit the internet. And, and this is uh, an improvement over what's out there now in terms of uh, 617 and, and uh, PSMA INT. So I think, I think the concepts that we've developed in preclinical models are now showing up. I think the, the takeaway from this is also that they had a higher kidney. So kidney may be limiting. So we have to still do some more development work to actually fine tune these molecules in order to tease out some of these uh, other uh, off target or uh, on target, but non-tumor uh, targets. And so I just wanted to uh, uh, pass along my kudos to Christina and, and, uh, and Roger Shibley. Uh, this is a very, very nice data and, and hot off the press. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge uh, in my the 30 seconds I probably don't have left, uh, all the people that contributed to all of this work, and obviously my longstanding relationship with, with Uwe Habakorn and the group at Heidelberg, as well as uh, the, the group at the Wild Cornell, and thank you for your time and appreciate the opportunity to be part of this. Thanks so much, John. That was an incredible talk, amazing data, and uh, I really look forward to seeing it in the clinic uh, in the near future, both there. Uh, these novel binding mechanisms and uh, some newer isotopes uh, from alpha emitters to terbium to OGA emitters. It's a really uh, exciting time. We have gone uh, significantly over time, so we have run out of time for questions. Uh, I'm going to take the list of questions offline and try to run them through our Twitter feed over the next uh, few days. We need to give up this room that I'm in for our GU Oncology Multidisciplinary Meeting that uh, starts around now every week 
Uh, I'd like to, to thank uh, uh, my co-host uh, Declan, who's run off to uh, start that MDT meeting, and also Howard and Andrea uh, from the PCF. Howard, do you want to have a, a last final word to wrap it up? Well, at 90 minutes, we still have 334 people online. They, they wanted to stay and listen to Dr. Babbage, but thank you to all of the speakers. Each person added a really interesting perspective to the problem and the solution. Um, good day, good night, wherever you are in the world, and thank you very much. Thanks so much.